never say die! Fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 263 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And I am a stupid robot. Okay. Am I the only one who watched the second movie? Is this is this the point yes. where we disagree? No, no, no. This is going to be a long show if after two weeks I'm the only one who watched Next Gen. No, no. I, watch, I watch Next Gen. I, I just, got the joke. I, yeah. I got it. I got it, too. I just have opinions about next gen <laughs> they can't all be winners josh yeah yeah so yeah so this week we are doing kids and robots because they go together like mayonnaise and peanut butter <laughs> so pretty good yeah <laughs> at least for josh uh yeah so we watched um the the iron giant further then we watched the new netflix special next gen for the now and if you like delicious sandwiches <laughs> and you'll Probably like the shows on the Podcast Collective, such as I Am Salt Lake, the Portland Beer Club Podcast, Mom and the New Dad, The Show, and of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. (laughs) I think there may be a new show. Oh, no. No, I'm wrong. It's February 18th. Oh, sorry. Bum, bum, bum. I think I think I figured out how we can make money for this show. We just go to all the other podcasts and say, "Listen, unless you pay us, we're going to talk <laughs> we'll about plug you. your show we'll at pull. the end." Of... <laughs> I am a podcast assassin. Dun dun dun. Yep. So, yeah, but if you're looking for our older stuff, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and if you would like to hear or actually uh, give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. You can get us at 708-NOW-RAP. That is 708-669-9727. Podchaser. Podchaser? We should mention it. iHeartRadio. Yeah. iHeartRadio and Podchaser. Yes, we're there too. <laughs> Those should be in the show notes. They should be in the show notes. I got a lot going on, man. Shut up. I'm, I'm not casting aspersions. I'm just saying. And if you I like, like aspersions. <laughs> I'm, I'm helping. That's why you don't recognize it. Yeah, that's why I'm so confused. Patrick's being useful. Aww. Patrick makes a point. All right, but we we have uh, some uh, listener feedback. We yeah, do. we totally have a voicemail. Yeah, from astute listener Karen, who <gasps> apparently took my advice and left us a voicemail this morning. Hey, forty going on fourteen guys. Listener Karen here. I just wanted to call and tell you that I really enjoyed the Octobu episode. I'm already looking forward to next year. In fact, I was thinking that if you have an itch to do a horror movie between now and next October, you guys should consider doing a Haunting of Hill House episode. It's um, based on a Shirley Jackson novel, but the 60s and 90s movies, The Haunting, and then the new Netflix show are all pretty similar. would make for a good then and now. And um, the new show is, really good there's a lot more to it than just what's on the surface i think you guys could probably really delve into it so yeah that's my thinking looking forward to the next show bye listener karen all i have to say is creepy ass floating bowler hat dude freaked me the fuck out i have not seen it yet and while i cannot necessarily promise that we will have something non-october netflix and horror related in the pipeline soon-ish yes and but what, we have talked. What happened? I was just saying we've talked about it before. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. 
It's yeah, I, this year we had horror remakes land at really inconvenient times. We were talking about Suspiria earlier. Mm, and then uh, we were also talking about um, uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. You know, <laughs> watching that one and all that. But it's, there's a lot of good remakes. Well, I'm going to say good remakes, but for, it's good for us because we haven't seen them yet. But a lot of remakes coming out that uh, just are making sure that we have more and more shows to give you guys. So that's awesome. And if you guys hear more stuff, you hear about movies that are coming out and you know that there are remakes coming out, definitely give us a ring. Call us. 708-NOW-RAP. We like hearing from you. All right. The ringy-dingy means it's about that time. Oh, yeah, it's about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. Darn it. And sports. Why can't I go, can't go any higher? Well, we're probably going to hand it, hand it off to Pat then. Sports. That's about as high as I can get right now. Sports, man. <laughs> so we get... July 31st, 1999, the premiere of The Iron Giant. Yes. And music. Music. Topping the charts this week at number three was All Star by Smash Mouth. Number two was Balamos by Enrique Iglesias. And the number one song in the land was Genie in a Bottle by Christina Aguilera. You know, I kind of like all those songs, and I'm not proud of any of them. (laughs) I kind of like and I kind of hate all three of those. Yeah. Makes me think of Shrek when I hear Smash Mouth anymore. Definitely All Star has become a meme song. Mm-hmm. Yes. It has. You gotta rub me the right way. Is there a wrong way to do that with you, by the way? Yes, I know there is. Saying, but... Trust me on that one, there is. <laughs> I don't want to get into details, just trust me on that. Note to self. Don't rub against the grain. <laughs> so, uh, Harry Sweet's Edison was an American jazz trumpeter and a legendary member of the Count Basie Orchestra. After the breakup of that orchestra, he became a highly sought-after studio musician, making important contributions to recordings by such artists as Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and Ella Fitzgerald. In 1956, he recorded the first of three albums with tenor great Ben Webster. On July 27th, he died peacefully in his home and was absorbed into the afterlife. Hmm. What about sweets? That's a strange one. We don't have a lot of died peacefully things. Yeah. It's usually like their colon exploded. That's how I'm going to go out. <laughs> Sweets was a ladies' man. That's why he was nicknamed Sweets. Ah, there you go. Good luck. <laughs> I, I wrote this one. Uh, Rudolf Halashinsky. How, thank you. Rudolf Halashinsky was born on July 31st, 1920, and Emma was he was a German composer and a painter. Beginning his studies with the piano at the age of eight before moving to Poland in 1934, which was then German Reich territory, he continued on with his musical pursuits, studying the organ and becoming a choir master. He went on to write several orchestral works as well as for the piano and organ, while also gaining notice for his paintings. On July 28, 1999, he began his decomposition as he <laughs> passed away in Bensburg, Bergisch Gladbach, Germany. Yeah, I wrote that. Yeah, of course you did. And he was absorbed into the dirt. Not a very smart family there, because, hey, you know where, where we should go in 1934? In into Poland. Poland. <laughs> they were already, right? I, when I read that, I'm like, that's why I left it in there, because I'm like, why would you move from somewhere that was potentially safe at that point to a German Reich occupied area? I don't yeah, maybe they hated Jews. Who knows? <laughs> let's just move on to movies. Yeah, let's not ruin it, Ben. The number one movie in the land was The Sixth Sense, 
starring a young Haley Joel Osment and an old Bruce Willis. And now we have a fat Haley Joel Osment and an older Bruce Willis. <laughs> True. Man, the first time I saw that movie blew my mind. Yep. I didn't see it coming at all. This movie still makes me angry that it uh, was more popular than and basically completely obscured the, in my opinion, better stir of Echoes. I don't think stir. Oh, I, I, I think it was. I think it was uh, visually better, but I don't think it was a better story. Hmm. I don't think Stir of Echoes doubles down so hard on requiring the twist to be enjoyable. I agree with that. But keep in mind, at that point, that was new for him. That was that was brand new. It wasn't like it was a, you know, it wasn't a... Uh, uh, Just another Shyamalan. Cliche, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Although he's come back. If you've seen uh, The Visit, that was pretty awesome. And Split was quite good too i want to see split and i want to see glass yeah. yes i want to see glass as well I, i'm with josh on this one i personally think stir of echoes was the better of the two because partially kevin bacon yeah i like them both but i, I think sixth sense was better i agree all right on august 3rd rodney william rod ansel Australian Bushman and inspiration for Crocodile Dundee died following a shootout with police officers at age 44. All right. You can't just leave it right there. <laughs> that's not a knife. That's a gun. Blam, blam, blam. <laughs> without it, without even going into anything, that entire sentence is just perfect. <laughs> yes. We need no further comments. Wait. Ansel was killed following a police shootout. The deadly altercation began at 10.45 in the morning, Jesus, on an intersection, a roadblock intersection of the highway and Byron's Road. What? Enzel had ambushed Sergeant Glenn Anthony Hudson and his partner, James O'Brien, and with a shot from his 30-30 lever-action lever rifle, Whoa. deflecting off a police car and fatally striking Hudson in the abdomen below his bulletproof vest. The gun battle immediately erupted involving numerous officers of the Adelaide River Police Station. About five minutes into the fight, Ansel was shot dead. O'Brien killed Ansel with a shotgun after unloading on Ansel's position with his Glock pistol after missing all his previous shots. The battle ended the authorities' 12-hour search for an attacker who shot at two nearby residences the previous night. Oh. See, that sounds pretty extreme, but what they leave out is that the initial cop said Foster's was a great Australian beer. <laughs> <laughs> and then it all kicked in. I that was, one was hoping Killa is just listening. I that one was gonna, for him. I was going to say what started it was somebody said to him, somebody ambushed him, and he said, that's not an ambush. But, you know, <clears throat> your joke was better. <laughs> that's why I didn't say mine. Good thing you didn't say that one. Yep. He, he, what? That's the important thing. I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Victor John Mature. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, just jump back right here. He, uh, This dude was also convicted of cattle rustling and assaulting the owner. He, I, I'm going to have to watch Crocodile Dundee with completely different eyes from now on. Yeah, I don't remember any of that. Well, yeah, it was the Hollywood version of this guy based on him. Not like uh, it was not autobiographical. Autobiographical. Say that it's again? Gonna be, it's going to be a long show. No <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right. Victor John Mature was an American stage film and television actor who starred most notably in several biblical movies during the 1950s. Known for his dark good looks and ham-fisted acting, he never won critical acclaim. He once said, I'm pretty proud of about 50% of my motion pictures. 
His best-known film roles included One Million B.C., My Darling Clementine, Kiss of Death, Samson and Delilah, and The Robe. He also appeared in a large number of musicals opposite such stars as Rita Hayworth and Betty Grable. He died of leukemia on August 4th at 86 years old. But he recently came back into pop culture when George Clooney played a caricature of him in the 2016 Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar. Oh, there you go. Nice. We talked about that movie. Yeah. Yes, I enjoyed that a lot. There's a picture of him in his parted hair and... Big goofy grin. Yeah, looks kind of goofy. All right, so TV, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Hosted by Regis Philbin premiered this week, the first game show to give the contestants a chance at $1 million. It took the number one spot immediately, followed by ER, Friends, and Frasier. I remember the big controversy... Controversy? controversy? In the first two years... In the first two years of that show was that their insurance company that uh, pays off if people actually win the million uh, got into a dispute with them about their questions being too easy. Well, I think wasn't one of the first guys that was on the show, he used his call in at the last question to call his dad and tell him that he was about to win a million dollars. Okay, yeah, the, the whole story behind that, I think we've talked about this before, actually. Probably. Um, the story behind that is that um, they hadn't given away a million dollars yet on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and the show Greed premiered promising its own million-dollar prize. Um, and Greed premiered, and then like two or three days later, you know, there was a rumor that Greed was going to give away a million on their next show, so Who Wants to Be a Millionaire filmed a real quick episode. And they they kind of railroaded this guy into... I mean, it, for instance, the last question is seri- was seriously so easy. It's a basic trivia question that any trivia file just automatically knows because it's just so easy. The first president to appear on you know on, on a primetime uh, prime time, prime show sitcom type based... Whatever. I can't remember how they phrased it or whatever. But everyone was Nixon on lap in. Everybody knows. You know, anybody that's in the trip knows that. And that was the question that they used to, to win the million dollars because they knew they're like, well, this guy's going to get this. And he used his call in to call his father just to tell him I'm about to be a millionaire. Huh. Nice. And they beat and they beat greed giving away a million dollars by like two days because of that. Good on. I mean, lucky for that guy. I mean, sir. Right. Yeah. He was in the right place, right time. I mean, I'm not saying he he wasn't worthy. He got some good questions in there. But when he got to the million-dollar question, they made sure he was going to win it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that when that question popped up, he had to have been like, are you serious? <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that'd that be like one of those, you know, like asking a sports guy, you know, uh, you know, who who leads the NBA in all-time points scored. Like, that's just a basic thing that, you know, it, you, know you, you just know the first oh, yeah. experience. Yes, that is a very easy trivia. trivia. Uh, totally, thing. Josh. I totally know that answer, too. <laughs> I, I, no. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. In case I actually know. did know that, but yeah. <laughs> I was doing a bit. <laughs> All right. So also on August fifth, Mystery Science Theater three thousand ends its ten-year run on cable television. Oh, but it's back, and we did an MSC through. Did we? Yeah, we did. Okay. We did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, Kelly Victoria Gould. As an American child actress who was born August 4th, Gould's acting career began at three weeks old in a birthing scene. What? Yeah. Uh, you talk about early acting. Yeah. Wow. Uh, at six wow. weeks old, she per- portrayed baby Chastity Bono in a movie about Sonny and Cher. She is best known for her role as four-year-old Lucy, the daughter of Louie and Kim on the HBO show Lucky Louie. What's off- funny 
uh, sorry to stop you there, but no. I, I've got a little schmutz on my screen that made it look like there was a period after baby. So on my screen, it said at six weeks old, she portrayed baby. <laughs> uh, now I'm concerned about your screen and the schmutz. Yeah, I should probably wash this. <laughs> Gould has also appeared in various other television programs and films, including the 2007 comedy and acronym of the week, BOG. I'm pretty sure that's Balls of Germans. Oh, that ties in nicely with our earlier musical segment. <laughs> I thought there was, was going to be balls on grandma. <laughs> or balls of gremlins. I don't want to see any of those. Bags of gonads. Don't feed them after midnight. Bags of gonads. Pat, what was it really? That is blades of glory. All right. She played the role of Shannon Clemens on the Lifetime original series Rita Rocks. And she was in Disney Channel's discontinued series Jesse. God, the kids watch Jesse all the fucking time. Hmm. I've never even heard of it. Uh, I think I watched. Well, I watched the uh, the sitcom, but not the Disney. I didn't know there was a Disney. There was a show. Disney one. That had the, there was like a a, ri- a rich family that lives in downtown New York adopt a m- culturally diverse group of children, and they all live in the same uh, penthouse suite with a giant lizard and a butler. A giant lizard? Yeah, there, there was, was a, a huge lizard, lizard in it. What? You weren't saying what? that just to make sure we were listening? No, there was a lizard. Was the lizard the butler? No, it wasn't the lizard butler. There was a butler and there was a lizard. They were separate. Ooh, wizard butler. Not wizard, lizard. God, it's going to be a long show. Lizard wizard? Yes. Okay, fine. King gizzard and the lizard wizard. (laughs) Butler. That's Uh, a real band, by the way. Just move on. (laughs) Push wizard. And Mike's head exploded. Sports. Moving on to sports. On July 27th, Tony Hawk became the first skateboarder to land a 900 meaning two and a half full rotations in the air. That's not an easy feat. No, I mean, the 720 was a famous skateboard trick at the time. And video game. Yes. Should have a really good skating video game, too. But, yeah, the, the, I think skateboarding, I think at this time, didn't really get a lot of press on it because they think they were just like, the idea was it's just a bunch of guys, you know, skating in a pole type of thing and not realizing how much like physics and ability it takes to get a goddamn skateboard to rotate two and a half times in the air. It takes all the physics. Yes. Literally. <laughs> Tony Hawk has all the physics. And moving on to St. Louis Cardinals, <laughs> Mark McGuire became only the 16th MLB player to reach 500 home runs in his career on August 5th as the Cardinals lost 10-2 to versus San Diego at Bush Stadium. Bush. Yeah, I remember that being a big deal, vaguely. I remember when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were having their home run battle. I think that's the only reason it was a big deal here in Chicago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was bartending on division at the time, and yeah, everybody was, every team was on all the baseballs every shift. I remember that, too. Remember? Remember? Now, who, when they're growing up, would not have loved to have a giant robot doing all their bidding? Wait, what about my... Oh, take us out, keyboard, Joel. Jumping back. Who wouldn't love to have a giant robot doing all their bidding when they were a kid? It's probably a good thing that I didn't have a giant robot doing my bidding. I think pretty much for all of us, except for Joel, who would be like, he just had the robot go around and apologize to everybody. Have you been reading my diary? Yes. 
I wish I had an apology robot. <laughs> this robot just brought back a bunch of indie bands. <laughs> <laughs> this robot forced Ween to get back together. <laughs> Push the little daisies and make them come up, please. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> then the Iron I'm Giant. <laughs> I'm sorry. 1999. <laughs> Good God. Um, this is a story of a nine-year-old boy named Hogarth Hughes who makes friends with an innocent alien giant robot that came from outer space. Meanwhile, a paranoid U.S. government agent named Ken Mansley arrives in town, determined to destroy the giant at all costs. It's up to Hogarth to protect him by keeping him at Dean McCuppin's place in the junkyard. Uh, that was written by Anthony Pereira, who did a better job at summarizing the movie than uh, IMDb did. Kent Mansley. Kent Mansley. If we've sure. learned nothing from doing this show, it's IMDb cannot write a synopsis. No, they cannot. Uh, Taglines. It came from outer space. That is all. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is directed by Brad Bird. You may have heard of him doing such uh, writing on movies such as The Incredibles, Incredibles 2, Ratatouille. Uh, directing, uh, he did, what did he, what was the first one that he did where he directed people? Uh, he Mission Impossible, that. Ghost Protocol. Yep. Yes. Is that the one with the big fish tank blow up? No, that's, this is the one where, with the airplane with the little fish tank plot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he did. He's done um, uh, episodes of Amazing Stories. He directed the Bart Simpson video, Do the Bart Man, Iron Giant. Wow. In- Do you need that in your resume? Hey, he did it, man. Uh, also did Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Tomorrowland, Incredibles 2, and something called 1906, which I, a young man discovers a series of of secrets and lies that left San Francisco highly vulnerable to the fires that engulfed it in the aftermath of the historical 1906 earthquake. Huh. Hmm. That doesn't sound interesting at all. Yeah. I was just going to say how huh, as well. But uh, Brad Bird, he is out there and doing stuff. Uh, this is a screenplay was also written by Tim McCanleys. There's, uh, he's plural? Yes, there were two of him. Oh. I don't know any other way to pronounce that. It looks right. Uh, he actually, I watched some of this, some other stuff on this, and they brought him on to help write because Brad Bird liked the work that he did with uh, Secondhand Lions. I saw that movie. Yeah. That is a, a film that is one of my wife's favorite films for reasons I can't quite understand. I, I don't think it's a bad one. I just don't. My dad really liked that movie, too. I've never seen it. I love it for two reasons. One Michael Caine and Robert Duvall have an amazing chemistry between the two of them. And oh, scene. all the illustrations in the movie are done by Berkeley Breathed, who <laughs> uh, did the art for uh, Bloom County. Okay, I knew it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, writing credits also extend to Brad Bird, Ted Hughes, who is the writer of the book Iron Man which was the inspiration for this uh, movie and is also the reason why Hogarth Hughes has that last name. It's a nod to him. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman. They're listed as an inspiration. And uh, uncredited Brent Forrester, also on here, who has been a producer on such things as The Office, King of the Hill, and The Ben Stiller Show, which I've just realized that Ben Stiller had a show. Oh, you never saw the Ben Stiller show? I've never seen the Ben Stiller show. It was actually pretty good. Yeah. 
just sketch comedy. Had some good moments. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the cast is super 1990s awesome, uh, with Jennifer Aniston as the voice of Annie Hughes, mom, Harry Connick Jr. as Dean McCoppin, Vin Diesel realizing that he's really good at voicing characters as the Iron Giant. This was super early in his career, too. Yes, this it was. was right after uh, Saving Private Ryan and right before Boiler Room. Yeah. And yeah, this is when he was still a, a, a relatively super unknown. Uh, James Gammon did a couple voices in here of Foreman Marvloach and Floyd Turbo. Uh, Cloris Leachman as Mrs. Ten- Tenzedge. Christopher, Mc- Christopher McDonald as Kent Mansley. Uh, if you do not recognize. Christopher McDonald by name. You know him as being the villain in every 80s movie and every <laughs> Adam Sandler movie you've ever seen. What's that? Shooter McGavin. Yes, Shooter McGavin. If you, know, if you know who Shooter McGavin is, you know who this guy is. And the late John Mahoney is General mm-hmm. Rogard, a 40-going-on-14 uh, favorite. Eli Marenthal is Hugh Hogarth Hughes. And I toss this guy in here because who doesn't love M. Emmett Walsh? I agree with that. As Earl Sutton. Personnel. Yeah. So yeah. Um, as we actually talked to him not too long ago, because he was Bryant on uh, Blade Runner. So some trivia: the scene where uh, Hogarth gets the espresso from Dean and goes on a animated rant was all personally animated by Brad Bird. Hmm. So he did the entire scene himself. Huh. Uh, Frank and Ollie, the two train men that uh, Kent Mansley interviews after the derailment, are actually caricatures of classic Disney animators, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, of the, I think it was the 12 old men that they had. Uh, they also performed the voices for the characters. Uh, animation writer Earl Kress said that Frank and Ollie are also lifelong train enthusiasts and have extensive scale model railroads in their backyards like Walt Disney used to have. And not uh, only that, but this is not their only uh, cameo appearance. Nope. They are also in The Incredibles. Okay. Uh, was I didn't see that in the trivia, so I wondered if you knew it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally know it. They're, they're, um, they are the two guys on the bench at the very end of The uh, Incredibles that's talking about being old school. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to better blend the computer-generated giant into the traditionally animated film, technicians came up with a program that gave the giant's lines a slight wobble in order to match the natural line imperfections found in hand-drawn animation. Hmm. Now, I will say the first time I saw this movie, I did not know that the Iron Giant was actually uh, computer-animated. This also really? makes it the first time a... Uh, there was the regular animation and or hand animation and computer animation in the same show. Uh, Warner Brothers originally wanted John Travolta to do the voice of Dean and have Arnold Schwarzenegger do the voice of Kent Mansley. That oh, would have God. been strange. That would have been bizarre. Harry Connick really embodied that character. He For did. Real. And I think Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the voice of a FBI agent in the middle of the Cold War would have been a little weird. Yeah. Good point. Uh, What do you mean double spy? (laughs) Also, this uh, (sighs) was executively produced by Pete Townsend of The Who. What? Yes. Pete Townsend actually created a concept album that was based on the book that this film was based off of and wanted to do it as a musical. So here's what happened. He's listed as a producer because they wanted him to be involved with it. 
and they didn't use any of the music that he wrote for it. And though during an interview, they asked him about it, and Pete Townshend was like, whatever, I got paid. So hmm. that leads into the next one. This was originally meant to be a musical. Pete Townshend and Des McAnuff uh, developed it as a stage musical using songs from Pete Townshend concept album, The Iron Man, much less like the stage version of uh, The Who's Tommy. Uh, Des McAnuff decided to work better as an animated feature and then pitched it to Warner Brothers. This is also, I think, the point where we mentioned uh, that Pete Townsend was uh, related to Joel. <laughs> yes. No shit. Yeah, you knew that, right? No. It, it's distant, but yes, we are related. Oh, that's cool. That is my birth last name. Nice. And I checked with my mom just to make sure. Okay, so awesome. Uh, among the comics, Hogarth shows a giant, an issue with a spirit in the 1990s. Uh, Brad Bird attempted to get backing for a spirit animated film. About the airline? Yes, that's exactly what it is. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, since I didn't see it in the trivia, something that uh, my mother-in-law actually pointed out is that the original book uh, written by, uh, what was it, Ted Hughes? Yeah, he wrote this book to comfort his children after his wife committed suicide. His wife was Sylvia Plath. Oh, oh shit. What? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, this was a children's book written to soothe the emotions of the children of Sylvia Plath. Wow. That's, yeah. That's... It just makes this whole thing that much better. Right? Um, all of that. That's why there were no ovens in the kitchen Dean's house. Oh, jeez. Yikes. Really? <laughs> what the hell, Pat? All right. <laughs> so... I do know that out of the four of us, there were two of us that had never seen this movie from beginning to end. Yeah, I was not proud of that. It has long been on my list to watch. I have never seen a single minute of this movie before. Yeah, I'd seen parts of it, and several times in the last year, I'd almost watched it on my own just for the hell of it and just had not gotten around to it. So I actually want to start, because I know, I know Josh has a concept of this and Pat stepping in completely blind to this one. What did you think, Pat? I thought visually it was beautiful. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't, I don't know how, how far we want to get into my review as far as like towards the end of the movie or anything, but um, I, I, I liked it. I don't think like it was, you know, a movie that I'm, I'm like, Oh, I can't believe I had never watched this before or anything like that, but I enjoyed it. It was huh. pretty much it's pretty much exactly what I expected it to be, and I did you know I will admit it was a little you know it was a little emotional at the end. I was like oh you know I mean so it's well written you know I mean I obviously cared enough for the characters that you know the ending was was bittersweet kind of you know but I didn't think it was anything special. See, I, I found it very special. I I thought it lived up to the hype and uh, couldn't believe that it had been this long and I hadn't seen it. And what struck me most was how funny it was. Like how laugh out loud in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. I think the first moment that it hooked me in with laughing out loud is when Dean turns around and apologizes before he unzips his pants and the squirrel <laughs> runs out. I I think that Dean has got some of the best scenes in the entire movie. Uh, and, and and my two favorite scenes, he doesn't even speak. One of them is when right after the Iron Giant does the cannonball into the pond, and you see Dean just float by gripping the chair and then when uh but actually right before that when um hogarth tells dean that the giant has to stay at his junkyard in order to be safe and he just stands up 
pours out his coffee and walks back in the house. So I, I've seen this. I saw this when it first came out. It's always been a favorite of mine. I, but you know, I love hand-drawn animation. I love the whole feel of this and the, the entirety of this movie is pro animated movies. This is in my top five. I did not see it in the theater. I didn't, I saw it when it came out on video, but I immediately fell in love with it just from the, the, the concept, the story alone, let alone everything else that went into it. And uh, it's probably between this and Aladdin, it's it's the, my top, you know, two favorite of all time. Faux show. Hmm. Love it. But what's not to love? There's so much good going on in this freaking movie. Uh, did, did Mike open a bar? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. Shut up. <laughs> You're slinging drinks over there? What's I, going on? I am. I needed more vodka and tonic, and I didn't realize that I had so many glass bottles in my little fridge over here. Talk amongst yourselves and stop judging me. <laughs> it sounded like you were going through Liberace's closet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I mean, I, I saw this. I think what I liked about it is there's a great balance between the innocence of Hogarth and the paranoia of Kent Mansley. Yeah, I mean... It's sure that, uh, and I know Pat is probably going in this direction. Kent is a little heavy-handed with where he's coming from and how it parallels like certain destructive attitudes in the United States, circa the Cold War. It, it's not subtle in its symbolism. No, but, but I don't. It's like that. I enjoyed it. It's not subtle, but it's not ham-handed. You know, it's it's very blatant in the people at this time because this if you notice one of the one of the things about this movie is that it takes place like a week after the soviet union um launched sputnik so there was he had a very you know like um not so much i am joseph mccarthy but i definitely i work for him (laughs) kind of vibe to him yeah well it, it was this underlying paranoia of the time and i think I think Kent Mansley, while I do like the character, he is a caricature of everything going on at that time, including just the goofball duck and cover. You know, hey, a nuclear bomb's coming your way. Duck and cover. Everything will be fine. Everybody get in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But uh, it, I think it did a good job of presenting that time without it being too cheesy. Well, Pat, I know you are the one to immediately call out for uh, ham-handed, over-the-top commentary. So I, I'm sort of curious. I sort of jumped your gun on that. I, how do you feel about this? I agree with Mike. I mean, it was over-the-top, but I don't think it was necessarily ham-fisted. Because, I, like I said, I could definitely see this being the type of guy who would be in the rank and file of a Joseph McCarthy administration. You know, like I mean, he's not quite as over the top with his, you know, paranoia and whatever, but he definitely is susceptible to believing that, you know, if you're, if you're not for us, you're against us. There's no gray area. Everything is black and white. You're not for it. You're against it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I've incorrectly predicted your issue with the film, what is it? Um, really? I just, I felt like it was just kind of, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it was just a bad film. I just don't think it was anything special. I really, I, I just, I don't think it's just one of those movies that I'm ever going to watch again. I don't, See, I, but this is the difference between like Joel and I and you. When Joel and I saw this, this is before Incredibles. This is before Ratatouille. This is before, you know, this is just 
right around the same time as when, when did uh, Toy Story come out? 2003. I think. Okay, this is pre-Toy Story. So for definitely, yeah, I would say that probably if I had seen it before any of those, because I mean, I was expecting as much as I've heard about this, like a Toy Story type of, uh, like, uh, oh my god, that was a oh. great movie. I'm glad I saw 1995. It. Sorry. Okay, Toy so this is. Yeah, 19, yeah, uh, 1995 for um, for Toy Story, but, but I, just, I was expecting it to be something just you know kind of almost uh, like I said, it would make me feel like why have I waited so long to watch this? And I just didn't get that from it. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I didn't get that like you know feeling of of I missed some nostalgia, and maybe that's just because I didn't see it back then. Huh? See, and that's weird because I came from the same places you with regards to not having seen it and i find myself wishing that this had been some sort of holiday tradition whether it was like something i watched every thanksgiving or something i watched every christmas day Mm -hmm. for the last 20 years i mean because this this is some of the uh, part of the reason why i think it really affected i don't say affected but it stuck with joel and i over you guys because some of the other movies that came out like animated movies that came out at this time was American Tale Mystery of the Night Monster. You know, it's there's a, you know, Fantasia 2000 which was good but not nearly as good as the first one. Um the animated movies, I mean they did an animated version of The King and I, you know, because nobody asked for it. Um <laughs> it's there was an, animated movies at this time were not awesome. They weren't great. Well, uh, I hadn't really realized the full potential yet, I think, at that point. Right. I mean, I, honestly, this the only other animated movie, let's see, Toy Story 2 came out this time, and also South Park, uh, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. So, I mean, there were not a lot, I mean, outside of, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! movies, there wasn't a lot of animation out there that was, like, a true storytelling, or, or you know, versus, like, like I said, with Yu-Gi-Oh! trying to sell something. This was a unique story. It was a in, encapsulated story. This is something that just kind of like a almost like a, a animated period piece. Well, that's why I think it stuck with me. Well, I, Joel, am I wrong? No, I was going to say I think that was one of the biggest things about it is it 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 played up that whole aspect of it being, uh, you know, like a a, a film at a time because um, it's very much in the same vein as as those old old school. Um, movies, but with kind of a, a, a new feel, new school twist to it. Mm-hmm. I um, I put the Iron Giant on the same level as the movie Them, if you remember, <laughs> if you know that one. With the giant ants. With the giant ants. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the fear of the nuclear age. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the you know giant monsters attacking the everyday uh, Americans in their homes type of thing. It's Though I will say right now, them is super cheesy, uh, but it's the same. I think it's the same kind of feel to it. I think that's kind of what they were going for. What well, what he was going for um, was kind of that, like I said, that paranoia of that time period, and um, uh, you know, even down to like the like you guys are talking about with the little the little film that they showed, you know, um, about duck and cover. I mean, it was it was totally playing up that whole mindset mm-hmm. and that, that style and that everything that made up that time period it seems like um but it's just done so well yeah and like i said visually it's it's a stunning movie yeah for a for a hand animated show i mean uh movie it there was a lot of love put into this mm-hmm. 
uh, one of the things that I, I watched a couple um, things on YouTube about this movie, and one of the things that Brad Bird did was actually got um, animation students from one of the local colleges to come over and help out with the animation on this one. So there's a, some animators that got their start working on the Iron Giant. Huh, that's cool. Yep. Some other trivia in there also was the uh, the license plate was something something 13, like 113, which is actually the local uh, University of Florida, University of California, one of the universities what the, where their animation um, class was in. And it shows up over and over again in his movies. But I I could watch this is one of those movies where if it's if it shows up on like I flip over and it's it's running, I'm watching it. I'm just gonna leave it. And yeah, I've, oh good. Oh, I was gonna say, like I said before, top five animated movies for me. And I've owned it uh on VHS and then D V D and now Blu ray and I just it is. It's one of those things that, that uh if it was on, I wouldn't turn it off. And uh, this is one of Juliana's favorites of all time, too. I'm not. I'm not even sure this would crack my top ten animated. Really? Yeah. I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Huh? Yeah, because this immediately rocketed into my top five. Huh? What? Don't get me wrong. The uh, Pixar films have set a pretty high bar, but this cracked that nut for me. Well, I think one of the things that sets it apart is what Mike has mentioned a couple times: is the fact that it's all hand animated. Um, there's something to be said for the the CGI and the storytelling that Pixar has done, but I think this tells just as good a story as any of those, um, with all the emotion and uh, you know the um, the well-rounded characters and and everything. But it also does it with that unique style that you just don't. Well, at this point, you weren't getting as much because they were starting to shift from the hand-drawn animation to the CGI. And then that took over, and then now it's you know it's still got some out there that are being done, but right, it's kind yeah. of a lost art form. Now there also was um, uh, portions of the movie that were cut out. There were scenes that were kept out of this, uh, including a nightmare that the Iron Giant has, where he actually um, he envisions people uh, the the giants. You kind of see what the giants are supposed to be doing, and they're actually like an invasion force. And in this cut scene, he dreams about hundreds of the Iron Giants walking across a planet and literally destroying the planet completely. I'm glad they didn't do that, honestly. I am too, because, I mean, you got this kind of, like, mystery of what, you know, there's a mystery of what the Iron Giant is about through two-thirds of the movie. And in the third half, I mean, the uh, third, um, third scene of the movie, when he finally flips out, and goes a hundred percent destruction mode. It's pretty freaking scary for. I mean, like if a kid watching this, I mean that would be a a freakout, including the technical, the uh, not te- technical, uh, tentacle arms that come out that were a total uh, nod to um, uh, War of the Worlds. Exactly. Um, I was trying to think of which part it was where it really turned into that. I think it's when the yeah the giant arms came out the that you were talking about, like the tentacle arms that really is on point with that. It's when he, when he realized when he, the iron giant thinks that uh, Hogarth is dead and then he kind of flips out. Oh no, I just meant where it felt like it was war of the worlds. Like it literally felt like it was exactly taken from that. But I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, like if I would have been, I don't know, 10 or 12, when this came out, 
you just that's a feeling I got as I was watching it. Like I was that age again. Like all of the kind of um wish fulfillment and whatever that you know you'd have a giant robot or that you'd see a movie about this cool giant robot that was not just, you know, this war machine, but that was also funny and was your best friend and everything. It just kind of played up to all those little boy kind of um fantasies and but it also has all the adults stuff in there that makes it good for people over the age of 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the casting, I mean, Harry Connick Jr. embodies that character. I think Jennifer Aniston did a great job. Um, you know, everybody fit their roles really well. And there's, even though there's, you know, quite a few characters, there's really only like what five main focal points in the film. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, it's just so well crafted. Yeah. John Mahoney as a general was perfect casting. Yes. Cause if you would have put somebody like um, Arlie Ermey, you know, it would have been a little too strong and over the top. You needed somebody like John Mahoney that can be that guy, but that can also be, you know, the softy that he's got a good heart. Yeah. So have we worn out the batteries on this giant? I think Pat and Josh have disappeared. I think they fell asleep. <laughs> no, I'm here. Yeah. I just, I mean, I don't know. I didn't hate it and I didn't love it. So I don't really, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it. I mean, I loved it, but I was sort of uh, front loaded in my commentary. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, and and I think that's the big difference between, I mean, timing of viewing because you have had literally two decades of animation to see before you saw this. And like when I saw this the first time, it was still, I mean, it was a fresh idea. So, yeah. But yeah. So uh, coming up next, we are going to take a break. And you are not going to be there for that because we're not going to be on the air. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about when we come back. That, that was confusing. <laughs> no. It's going to be like time travel. It's going to be like minutes for us, but it's going to be seconds for them. Right. I don't know why that tickles my fancy, though. Yes, you have a very fancy fancy. Um, you fancy to yourself. Have you ever no. drank Baileys from a shoe? Uh, thank you. Uh, now, uh, next gen, 2018. And next next. Jesus Christ. What? Now, next gen, up? 2018 Netflix original. That's really hard to say. Canadian <laughs> uh, Cricket Wicked Keeper. <laughs> oh, wow. Still? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, when we get back, we're going to talk about next gen and uh, talk about another child who has found a killer robot to befriend. Time, it's a girl. Yes. All so right. Much- well, Genders, Joel. <laughs> we'll be back. All right, we're back. And for the now, we watch Next Gen, which is a Netflix original animated feature. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the Not a John Meyer autobiopic. No. Jennifer Anderson. Topical. Engage. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, this is a friendship with a top secret robot turns a lonely girl's life into a thrilling adventure as they take on bullies, evil bots, and a scheming madman. Taglines. Friendship is the ultimate upgrade. Is it? Is it, though? Uh, <laughs> this is for... an upgrade. Dude. Oh, that looks so good. I haven't seen it. Have yeah. you seen it? I own it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like RoboCop in reverse. Nice. All right. So this is directed by Kevin R. Adams, who is known as, for uh, such stuff as Nine, Hercules, 
and Gear. Nine uh, was that weird animated thing, wasn't it? Yeah, Nine was yeah. like a little sack boy type thing, which I a Nine is fantastic. Nine is also in my top top ten. I've not seen it, but it's been on my list for a long time. Yeah. Uh, he also did a, a animated short called Enter the Sandbox. Two toddlers who are playing in a sandbox get into a fight over a toy. It is shown as a ever-escalating, over-the-top kung fu battle, which I think I would want to watch that. I'd watch that. Yeah. Uh, Joe Cassander is also involved with this, who uh, did animation for Nine, was visual effects for Pacific Rim and the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, writing credits, Kevin R. Adams, who, believe it or not, has something to do with Nine, Hercules, and Gear, and also was on the animation department in The Emperor's New Groove, which I love, and I can't understand why some of you don't. Yeah, we don't. Uh, yeah, I kind of hate it. I cannot wrap my mind around that. I've never seen it. No. Nope. What? It's it's one of my it's one of my goofball favorite. It's not it's not on my top ten of Disney movies, but it is definitely something that I will leave on if it's on. I it always struck me as a very pandering type movie. It kind of is, but the I think the interaction between David Spade and um. Peter Patrick Warburton. Well, Patrick Warburton is amazing in that movie. Well, he's amazing in everything. He's like John Goodman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Good call. Uh, so also r- story by Wang Nima, who is known for Next Gen. Story. She plays a talk show host and wrote something called the Ohala Song. Uh, Ryan W. Smith also helped out with the screenplay. He is known for something called Some Assembly Required and did the tv show called reboot oh no yes that's what he's doing reboot so it's kind of a weird grab bag of talent that uh, makes sense i mean at least well go ahead okay so <laughs> yeah we'll we'll get to that credited cast uh john krasinski is project 77 the aforementioned secret robot charlene Yi as my um Ooh, i know from this is 40 Yep, she was also a party goer in Cloverfield. Oh, I mean, she, if you've seen interviews with her, she's just hilarious. Like, she's this really odd woman who's done a lot of uh, auditioning for parts where she clearly wasn't the right actress. And her stories about doing that are just amazing. That's fantastic. She's a great interview. She's very funny, awkward, and just, you know, socially... She has a very uh, socially inept character type thing. I don't know if it's like her or if it's like like a shell she puts on when she's in these interviews, but it's just really kind of funny. I have to I have to look that up. Yeah, her on Conan is always pretty funny. Yeah, I think she was talking at one point about uh, trying to get onto Big Bang Theory mm. <laughs> and how it just didn't work. Conan always says that she's one of his favorite guests. That's crazy. That's interesting. Huh. All right, so this also stars Jason Sudeikis as Justin Pinn, Aries, the voice. Uh, also, Michael Pena as Pena. Mo- Pena, sorry, as Momo, the dog, who I thought was amazing. Well, Michael Pena is amazing. Yeah, he yeah, is. that's the thing. Is normally a dog who has kind of a street accent would annoy me, but Mike, it's Michael Pena, and the He's fact like, that they annoying John Leguizamo. Yeah, and the fact that he. <laughs> They had to bleep the dog. <laughs> was fantastic. Uh, he was out the yard that first time, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, David Cross as Dr. Tanner Rice. Constance Wu as Molly. Uh, you may know her from the, uh, I guess, 
it hit movie now, Crazy Rich Asians, that kind of came out of, uh, did it come out of nowhere? Kind of. I mean, it was a pretty popular book, and she'd already enjoyed a lot of success for being uh, fresh on Fresh Off the Boat, which if you haven't seen it, you really should. Cool. But yeah, the uh, so she's definitely been in the spotlight recently. Greenwood is voiced by Kiana Lede. Am I saying that right? I would think so. Yeah. Uh, she has been in Scream, the TV series, and ha- apparently she's a singer because she's in Fifty Shades Freed and The Smurfs 2, which are two really weird soundtracks to be involved with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no crossover there. I know, right? Fifty Shades of Smurf. Um, <laughs> I'm going to Smurf you so Smurf and Smurf. I'd watch that. Also, Anna Akana does the voice of Ani in this one, and she is part of the writing team for Ant-Man. Oh, yeah. cool. So very cool. (gasps) So uh, I think out of all of us, outside of myself, I think uh, Josh will be most interested in this first bit of trivia. This movie is made in a free animation program called Blender on half the budget of a typical Disney Pixar film. I know what Blender is. And I have to say, Julianne and I watched this together. Um, the animation was pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't find this out till after I had watched the movie, and it made me even more impressed with it. Right. For a non-big budget, well, Netflix is creeping up on that level, but for a non-Disney or Pixar film, uh, I was very impressed. And all the nods to other movies in this movie... Um, when Mai asks 7723 what the weapon in his arm is, he replies that it is a phased plasma rifle in the 40 gigawatt range, which, Patrick, is a reference to the scene in the Terminator from 1984 in which the character tries to buy a similar weapon from an 80s gun store, which, of course, they do not carry. Hey, pal, just what you see in front of you. I'm <laughs> nice. That. Oh, I caught that one, yeah. Uh, the small unicorn, or horse, as 7723 calls it, is a nod to Blade Runner, another movie about what it means to be human. That's a reach. It is. It is. I'll give it to him because there are so many references. I mean, especially with the uh, uh, with the new robots talking about having a bigger screen and the when the mom calls out that they have a headphone jack. Oh, that was, yeah. I was like, oh, these are iPhones. Dun, dun, dun. Um, when 7723 is in the lobby of IQ Robotics early in the movie, the loudspeaker can be heard saying the red zone is for loading and offloading of passengers and robots only. I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. Uh, this is a reference, of course, to Airplane from 1980, where they announce and disagree over the purpose of the red zone versus the white zone. The red zone is for immediate loading and unloading of passengers only. There is no stopping in the white zone. Give me your white zone shit, Joan. Just say it out loud. You want an abortion. That whole thing. No, the red zone is for... <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of references, lots of little tips to the hat of other movies. And apparently in this one, in 2018, uh, when a lonely girl who gets picked on gets a hold of a... Uh, Project 77 robot, she apparently becomes a domestic terrorist. She has some issues. She, okay, she is cutting police robots in half with a laser sword. 
Well, okay. I had pretty low expectations for this when I sat down, and I, I was immediately impressed by one thing right off the kick, is how much of the character development, instead of in typical now-movie fashion, they over-explain everything to us, they allowed us to see a montage and trusted the audience to be smart enough to like figure out what happened in terms of how much she hates robots because her mother withdrew out of grief and tried to make robots a replacement husband. Yeah. Her, there's a lot of kind of common subtle, well, not subtle commentary, but a lot of commentary on the disconnect with everybody, not just the mom even, but, um, you know, relying so much on technology and not paying attention to what's going on around them that they're, you know, kind of relying on it more and more. Well, and generally, I take that sort of statement as kind of neo-Luddite anti-technology garbage. So the fact that I liked this film, honestly, I disagree with its core message, and I actually really enjoyed this. And part of it's because of the storytelling. I think a lot of the storytelling in this was great, by the, like you said, by the fact that you get her whole backstory in less than 30 seconds. Yeah, the combination of their choice of the music and what they show in the montage as she grows up, like, you get her character before she's spoken a word. And I thought that was a really nice way to set everything up. Mm-hmm. Very much like an up opening. Yeah. Oh, man, that that uh, that I, scene in up is heart-wrenching. I, if you meet anybody did not, that did not cry in the first ten minutes of Up, they are not a human being. <laughs> I concur, sir. Yes. Better but, love story than Twilight. Well, so is Mein Kampf. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> it's not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. Oh. Anyway. Um, I'm in the same camp as Josh. I walked into this with You mean Kampf? Mein Kampf? <laughs> no, with Josh in terms of walking into this with little to no expectation. And um, I had told Julianne, I'm like, you know, I need to watch this movie for um, the show. And I thought, you know, you might like it because it's, you know, big robot. And I know how much love the Iron Giant. <laughs> and um, she and I just were going back and forth throughout the whole movie, just commenting on, you know, the artwork and the how, you know, cool the robots were. And um, I was very impressed. I was like, if this is what Netflix is kind of opening the gates with for an animated feature, not an animated show. I'd be curious to see where they go next. I mean, until the robots want to kill everybody twist, I, this is a world I wanted to live in. <laughs> but when the robots, when they do the fact that they turn red and they look really angry and they smoke, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Yeah, even then I'm, I'm still, I'm still with it. You know, <laughs> I yeah, like that. Gotta take the bad with the good, you know, <laughs> you, you want to live a life of luxury every now and then a robot blows up and kills you yeah, yeah. whatever Pat's going to be like hey the robot's going to try and kill me how efficient is that it's robot like knows all my needs <laughs> better than me having to make breakfast <laughs> I just want my noodles to dance damn it <laughs> oh my god that the crazy ass noodle balls I love those things and it threw itself away that's what Juliana thought was the best part of it <laughs> Uh, littering your, your your food throws itself away well if you're gonna cut out the middle man now as far as comparisons to the movie that we chose to compare it to i thought you know aside from the gender swap between you know boy and girl um 
that aspect of it. It actually, I mean, it 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 played a, a lot of the same notes. It was kind of along the same lines, more than I was expecting. Yeah, I, although the characters were sort of the inverse of each other, like where Hogarth was this sheltered boy who is in love with the adventure of the world. This is a girl who just has unfocused rage and hates everything her world is. Mm-hmm. Shut off from everything. Yeah. And there was some interesting commentary going on that was maybe a little heavy handed, but um, the scene where she kind of comes back with uh, the robot the second time on the playground and just, she becomes the bully Yeah, and you know, the robot who's trying to, to kind of figure out the world on his own um, knows that it's wrong, but he doesn't know quite what to do because he doesn't want to challenge the friendship. And there's just kind of this great little interplay that, then turns into a friendship between the humans. But at that scene, it's just kind of hard to watch a little bit. Cause it's like, it, it kind of makes you realize how easy it might be, especially at that age to kind of flip the script when you have that power. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> with the, the moment where maybe we shouldn't put, even though she's a bully, we probably shouldn't put her in a cage. <laughs> you know, that I mean, there the I think the needle swung real far on on this one. Um, like I said, she's she made the she made the like the headline news on this. Yeah, I think too few stories have the courage to allow their protagonist to just be unequivocally wrong in the wrong. Much less children's movies. Oh yeah, I mean this, and this is one of the things like when. When uh, I was watching it with um, with Sophie, and halfway through it, she's like, "Huh, she is, is she like destroying mailboxes? Oh, she's destroying cops. She's really kind of going over the edge on this one. I mean, it. I I agree that yeah, there is that prepubescent. It's it's very rare to have a child be an antihero. Yeah, definitely. But there's redemption. There's a character arc at the end. Um, where she, you know, she kind of is realizes that what she was doing wasn't the right way to handle her feelings. And, um, but when her a, mom, it's a risky step to take as a storyteller to take your, your main character. You've developed this, you know, this sympathy for in your opening act and then just have, have her start doing all this really bad shit. <laughs> I mean, aside from the stuff that you could forgive based on her background, like the way she interacts with what her best friend is, how unfair she is to uh, Project 77. 77 or, yeah, how she treats him. I mean, this is just not a thing a good person does. And the fact that they were able to show her doing that, I thought was a really bold choice and really made me connect with this film. But I think it's a it's a it's an important point to make um, that they showed it like that, because in a, in a child in that situation, you know, where you've got a father who walks out and your mother is disconnected. I mean, how else are you going to kind of channel that energy? And I think it's a very real set of emotions. Now, the you know, the giant robot angle isn't obviously something that's going to happen at least not yet but um you know a lot of kids do act out and i mean i think it's kind of it's a it's a a good thing for them to see that you know that's not the way it has to be it is good storytelling it's not lazy yes plus it had a really kick-ass that giant robot the jason sudakis one was badass aries yeah especially at the end 
Yeah, this was just overall an incredibly pleasant surprise for me. It was a lot better than I was expecting for something that had the Made by Netflix moniker on it. Because I've watched some of the animated shows that Netflix has made, and there's some crap. It was I mean, a lot better than I was expecting it to be. There's some good stuff. I mean, I've heard good things about Troll Hunters, and I've heard uh, the Dragon Prince is a worthy, you know, kind of successor to Troll Hunters is actually pretty damn good. But it's you know it's Guillermo del Toro once again. Um, it's his creation, so it's like Netflix. I think is kind of throwing some stuff against the wall sometimes to see what sticks. But overall, I mean, I think they're trying to strive for higher quality programming so that they can continue to you know keep people glued. Um, and they're proving that they're capable of it. They're showing that they have open pocketbooks, that's for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. One, in terms of a long-term strategy, that works for them because they get to keep these in perpetuity without paying licensing fees to anybody. Yeah. And the fact that they release very little on, um, on hard copy format requires you to subscribe to their service if you're not pirating it. Like... I would like to have the Marvel series. Who's pirating things in my collection? But they they only release them for a limited time and then they're gone. And like Stranger Things is the only thing they've really had a huge push with actual physical content that you can buy. Otherwise, most of the stuff is outside of like toys and things. You can't buy the actual shows or the movies. They're they just don't do it. I mean, Amazon does it a little bit more than Netflix, but it's it's smart. But it's frustrating for collectors like myself. Just saying. Hmm. But uh, um, now there were two things I wanted to, to ask about, and I don't. I mean, I guess we aren't going to call spoilers. But the the twist with Jason Sudeikis' character and the fact that the professor, what happens to him? Yeah, uh, one was not a surprise at all, and the other was a big surprise. <laughs> I I didn't see the the, the, the the twist with the Sudakas character initially. Juliana caught it before I did. But the other part with the professor, totally, I was like, is he coming back? Right, yeah, exactly. Like, I, just, I just kept thinking, like, well, th- there's no way that was permanent. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh, yeah, they kind of, they, I mean, they, that was, and that it was, was another interesting choice that, you know, that they chose to just kind of, you know, most times they're not going to do that. And it was so quick. There was no like real warning for it. It was just like all of a sudden, it's <laughs> no, over. It's like Tasha Yar. Yeah. Yes. Holy crap. That's a callback. But seriously. <laughs> but you know what was cool about it was the fact that Justin Penn was just like, you can tell. I mean, if you want any given moment where a villain is like not fucking around, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, you're in my way. <laughs> all right. Moving on. The it raised the stakes for the end. Um, and it also kind of was, again, something that kind of, I think, was pivotal for her character is that, it, again, it showed that nobody is permanent, you know? Um, and you just have to either dwell on that or you have to move forward. Uh, Unless you have maybe. a giant robot, then you, you don't have to... Well, but yeah. you use the giant robot to move forward. Now, and and I, I actually liked the Project 77 character development in this the fact that he agonized every night about which memories to delete Mm -hmm. and he prioritized all of the positive and negative aspects of who she was over everything else yeah good choice and he did not 
um, show a mouth. He did not generate the smile until after he deleted his weapons. Good call. I, I can't say I consciously noticed that. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I noticed when he smiled, but I didn't put two and two together like yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't until after he deleted his entire weapons cache that he was like, all right, cool. And then he and lit as, a... As much as, as much as I like John Krasinski, I just... I don't know why his, his voice acting in this kind of annoyed me. Well, I think it's kind of new for him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think he's still was, kind of... Something about it, just I, the affectation he took on or something, you know, to play the robot. I don't know. I just didn't like it. He's getting his feet wet. And and maybe it won't work out for him. I mean, it threw me a little bit, but it was, didn't take me out of the movie at all. I wouldn't say it took me out of the movie. Just every now and then I'd be like, hey, that's John Krasinski. <laughs> and <laughs> having David Cross play all the robots was kind of fun. Yeah, that was I. I enjoyed that. Like every every you know every robot was him with just a little slightly different voice. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big David Cross fan, so I mean that was funny to see. Well, and to imagine him in the studio having to act out all the different parts, right, would be fun to watch. But yeah, no now go apologize. I'm sorry. Sometimes she can be a bit of a handful. <laughs> Smack. <laughs> so let's let's get back to Momo. <laughs> the, the cursedest dog on the planet. <laughs> that dog. I I would get you know nice little bit of drama in between between Project Seventy Seven and my get a little bit cool. All right, cool. This is what's going on. Character development, character development. Then Momo comes in with the get away from my beep 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 beep. <laughs> Th- that I it's a, it's a rare thing that a movie that we watch for this show makes me laugh out loud. Momo made me laugh, especially when his head got stuck in the door. <laughs> at the very, very end. Like, very ah! end and, and how his eyes bug out every time the doors close on him. And he's completely oblivious. Like, he doesn't even think about it until he's out of there. He's like, that hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the, when it's happening, eh, it doesn't matter. Now, now, moving back to that, to what I'm going to call the arena scene. Everyone's in there watching the uh, soccer game that's played by robots. I I thought that the whole um, calling out Ares as being the villain to the entire public through the video thing was very cool. It was clever on her part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not I, it's not the first time I've seen that sort of twist, and I don't want to spoil other movies that you guys maybe have not seen, like UHF. <laughs> But I, it, it, it is something that's been done before. Thanks, yeah. mister. Something that has been done before in another super high-profile animated movie. You got any change? <laughs> Wheel of Fish. Oh. You could have had Red Snapper. You're so stupid. <laughs> We're going to get very distracted. Yeah, yeah we, we are. That's on Amazon, by the way. Anyway. I'm sorry, Josh, you had a point. Uh, it's gone. <laughs> He was talking about the what happened? The other high-profile animated movie that used. The oh same. yeah, but I didn't want to spoil it because I don't know who all seen it, and if I mention the title, I've already spoiled it. So spoil we it. Can move on. No, no, no. No, the whole like uh, bad guy saying something uh, that he doesn't think is being broadcast to a huge audience uh, is not super new. It's also like one of the key moments of Coco. Uh, oh, Coco was great. But uh, that scene immediately flashed me back to the similar scene in Kogo. But there have been other scenes in Hollywood where they do that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And uh, Pat, if you haven't seen Kogo, really, before it leaves Netflix, see it. I mean, it's Hixar, dude. 
it's Dude. just as Pixar as the rest of Pixar. <laughs> it's really good. All right, I'll put it in the queue. Yeah, no, put no. it in the queue. And I'll put it in the queue. Doesn't I mean it's? it's I've seen it three times already. Well, today. Okay, yesterday. Anyway, would you believe a week ago? <laughs> do we have anything else to say, or do we want to do thumbs up, thumbs down? <clears throat> sure. Yeah, we could do that. Patrick, thumbs up, thumbs down. I would. I would give them both a thumbs up. You better. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't dislike Iron Giant. I just didn't. I mean, it's not. Wor- it's definitely not worthy of a thumbs down. It just. It was a good movie. I just. I don't. I don't know what all the hype's about. Well, I think. I like I said. I think the hype of it is if you saw it in the timeline when it came out. Well, and I didn't see it in the timeline when it came out, and I'm in a very enthusiastic thumbs up for both. That's why I like Josh more. <laughs> Joel? Yes, I would say absolutely thumbs up. Like I said, Iron Giant is one of my top animated films of all time. And uh, Next Gen, I would definitely give a thumbs up. I, again, was very pleasantly surprised. And just the animation alone without the excellent storytelling was just way, way beyond anything I was expecting. Superb. Yeah, beautiful movie and, and well acted. Yep. I am going thumbs up on both of them. I initially, I will say that initially I was not a hundred percent behind the, um, the second one, but after watching it, I, I fell in love with it. Next gen is actually a lot better than I expected it to be. Cute little movie. It is. And made for half the price of a Pixar film. (laughs) Because of blender. What a bargain. I was kind of annoyed that, like, you know, the whole re- redoing his system and bringing the weapons back online was nothing like doing any of the other stuff. It's like, it's like a little bit at a time, coming back a little bit at a time as he's deleting a little bit. It's like, that's not at all how it worked earlier, but I'll let it go. Yeah, I, I'm with you in, in more or less exactly those words. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have opinions about the Iron Giant and or Next Gen, or if you want to give us new show ideas, you can always give us a call at 708 now wrap. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And if you're looking for our older stuff, uh, iTunes, as always, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, Podchaser, and iHeartRadio. Word. Joel. Yes. What are we doing next week? Next week, we are going to rock out without our cock out. (laughs) We're doing a female, uh, well, chick rock. I don't know. Was that what we were calling it? I guess so. Until we come yeah. up with something less offensive. Less offensive, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're basically talking about bands that have a real strong female lead, whether that's just the singer or whether it's all women. Vixen. Oh, no. <laughs> Are we really going to talk about Vixen? <laughs> Vixen. That's what you go with. <laughs> oh, he's called his first round draft pick. Oh, no. Yes, he has. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So, uh, yeah, so next week we are talking about... I guess chick rock, um, mm-hmm. all girl bands or bands with uh, strong female uh, front or front. Yeah. Um, we go with a less offensive name like boob rock or something. Yeah, that's what we're gonna do, Pat. This <laughs> is getting better and better. On that note, good night, everybody. You have a wonderful night, and I hope you all get the giant robot that you deserve. God, I hope I don't get the giant robot I deserve. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> It's the Ass Fister 4000. <laughs> Fisto was designed for your pleasure. <laughs>
please assume the position. Ribbed for my pleasure. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't use that robot. No news is good news with Gary Gnu.